this would not be a wise robot because what that robot would lack is an understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to grow up, what it means to have a history, have a childhood, to have all of these life experience and finally to have a self. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next half an hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. We are incredibly excited to welcome our guests today, Professor Kirsten Dautenhahn. Since 2018, Kirsten has been Canada 150 Research Chair in Intelligent Robotics at the University of Waterloo in Ontario and the director of Waterloo's Social and Intelligent Robotics Research Laboratory. Her main areas of research are human-robot interaction, social robotics, assistive technology, and artificial life. Kirsten is also a new fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Kirsten, welcome to the show. You must interact with a lot of robots in your day job. So what's that like? Do you find yourself naturally connecting or bonding with any of them, even if you know that they're just machines? No, surprisingly, um, I don't. So I'm okay. actually not anthropomorphizing my robots much. Of course, if you mm -hmm. interact with a humanoid robot and the humanoid robot smiles at you, you might just, whether you want it or not, you might smile back. But um, I right. mean, I came to robotics by being a biologist, all of my degrees are in biology. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been very curious of observing creatures, animals, mm -hmm. people that are doing stuff and trying to understand what they are doing, why they are doing it, why they make decisions and so on. That This then led me into artificial intelligence. And this eventually, in my postdoc period led me to robotics. So I'm not mm -hmm. someone who is an engineer from birth, so to speak. Um, I actually came to robots um, via my interest in natural systems, in creatures. And so this is why, mm -hmm. yes, I'm enthusiastic about robots. They're great tools. I think you can do great research with them. You can also do research with them, trying to understand human behavior. Um, in addition right. to building systems that can do useful things, helping people, for example, in a healthcare context or in an education context. I was just wondering, so Kirsten, who is anthropomorphizing more, the social scientists or the computer scientists? Might be interesting to do a study about this. <laughs> That's fine. Um, <laughs> I mean, there is, of course, a certain you know, a certain tendency of us to anthropomorphize that is just automatic, that's biological that's right. almost, you know. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. that that there are certain cues, as I said, I gave the example of a humanoid robot that smiles at you or waves at you. Um, mm -hmm. You might wave back and while you're waving, you might think, why am I actually waving at this <laughs> machine? <laughs> yeah. So um, I think, yeah, this is more automatic, almost an automatic process, you are presented with certain cues that are similar to cues that you see in humans, in other animals, mm -hmm. in creatures, and then you respond. Um, right. And I would say everyone is in one way mm -hmm. or the other um, 
sensitive to that. I don't think we can escape from that and look at a robot mm -hmm. purely as a machine. Mm. I mean, unless the robot looks purely machine-like. Right. <laughs> um, you know, if if you have a robot that looks like a normal laptop, then there's no reason why you should smile right. at it. <laughs> but um, or That's right. Or, for example, vacuum cleaning robots you might right. have seen. You know, lots of people now buy vacuum cleaning robots, but some even anthropomorphize them, which is right. really amazing. It's like a little you know? pet or something whizzing around yeah. the house. Yeah, yeah. I, can, I can see that. Yeah, people give them names. They might put little <laughs> stickers on it. There are <laughs> some right. funny, yeah, there are some funny videos you might find, uh, you know, where... The, People who have cats, the cats might sit on that vacuum cleaning robot <laughs> like a little queen or king and then being driven around, you know, proudly sitting on the vacuum cleaner. And, um, yeah, and people, you know, find that hilarious. But but for me, this tells us more about people and right. nothing about the robots. I was going to um, start with a few wisdom-based questions. That's the, the theme of the podcast. Um, and then we'll go into some more robotics questions um, mm -hmm. afterwards. But my first question on, on wisdom was like, you know, it's a term that can mean many different things. So I'm interested what it means to you. And is there anything specific about wisdom that you think uh, is perhaps overlooked or counterintuitive? Well, I'm not sure if there's a universally accepted um definition of wisdom i mean to me personally mm. um it's about when it's about in your in your thinking and in your actions that you consider not only your own interests and well-being but also those of others around you this could be people you know that are close to you like family and friends but also people who are not close to you and you need to consider other people even, you know, if they have very different backgrounds or might even be located in very different mm. locations, you you need to show compassion. You need to also base your behavior and your thinking, um, which the two of them go uh, alongside, mm. based on values such as fairness, tolerance, and respect. Would you say the morality was necessary for wisdom or, or is it kind of a distinct concept in your mind? No, I mean, I talked about values. Again, I'm not sure how morality is being defined in the literature. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, you should you should use certain values and judgments in the way on how you treat people or how you think about people. Um, you know, treat them with, with uh, fairness, tolerance, respect, mm. dignity. Um, yeah, and not getting into the very easy distinction between in-group, out-group, and then right. and everything that can follow from there. Kirsten, if you were to pick one thing people could do to help them make wiser decisions, so taking it from your disciplinary perspective or your life experiences, and you can speak freely here, what do you think would it be? I don't do research on wisdom, so I cannot mm -hmm. speak from my prof professional perspective. I can only speak from my life experiences, but something that I also often communicate to the younger generation, you know, researchers who I'm, who I'm training, who I'm talking to, who I'm guiding and mentoring is that, you know, we should not make decisions when we are angry or upset or even extremely happy, you know, so any, any situation where you want to respond immediately because, you know, it triggers something in you on an emotional level. Um, 
these are very often then reactions where you look back a few hours later or a day later and you think, oh no, I shouldn't have written that email or I shouldn't have really said that. Um, so sometimes it's good to, although it's very difficult, to stay calm or at least stay in some kind of neutral place right? and just step back and then say, okay, I let this go for now. I'm not letting this go you know, at all. I will come back to this, but not now. I need to first mm -hmm. step back and digest it. And then I will say something, make a decision, talk to someone or send an email or whatever the context of that situation was. But um, I mean, to me, that would be, I mean, personally, people who can do that and people who I see doing this and who I appreciate, I would say this is at least one aspect of being being wise, so to speak. That's really interesting. But if I were to push back, I agree with you. Uh, in most situations, that probably is the best strategy. But when we think, for instance, about the various uh, sort of, uh, movements to improve the conditions of the oppressed groups and others, where often you need to express yourself and you need to be sort of uh, motivated and you you can't just be uh, often you will not be taken seriously unless you express how you feel uh, I find that in, uh, in those situations isn't that the case that sometimes those emotions can also be a very powerful medium I mean it's difficult on a certain level, I would say, yes, I agree. If it's something that really, really matters, something ex extreme has happened, you need to convey how you feel, what you think about it. I was maybe more thinking about day-to-day -day conversations or interactions right. that you have. I was not thinking about life and death or people starving or, you know, situations like that um, or war, you know, and I was not talking about that. Um, right. But even in certain situations, I mean, if you think about um, decision makers on a on a um, on an economic level or on a political mm -hmm. level, I sometimes seem to observe that they react very quickly, just based on you know what comes to their mind at that moment, and that's mm -hmm. not necessarily a good thing. Um, right. I think, in particular, for people who have power. I mean, I'm just an academic, you know, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not powerful. I'm, um, mm -hmm. I don't run a multi-million business. I don't, I'm not a politician, you know, mm -hmm. in any sense. So I'm not a powerful person, but many people are, and they should make wise decisions and not always react with the first thing that um, comes to their mind when they react. Right. I mean, I, I'm sure the listeners can think of a few examples uh, how that has happened in the last couple of years. I was thinking about the fact that people's behavior depends partly on in internal factors, you know, their history, their personality, etc. But also um, external factors, the, the situation they find themselves in, the context, etc. That will contribute to, uh, those two things will contribute to the, the choices they make. So with that in mind, like, what, what do you think we could change on a structural level about our communities that would lead to us making wiser decisions as a society. So more like rather than the individual level, you know, changing something about the context we find ourselves in that would lead to 
an increased number of wiser decisions? Yeah, I think, again, I'm not a politician who is involved in politics on a local level or national or or Mm, international mm, level. mm. But what I find very important is in particular for the younger generation. I work at a university. I'm a professor. So I'm thinking very often about my students, you know, Mm. or students in general, even if I'm not teaching them, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a young generation and they go to university and they are often experiencing just a lot of stress, also mental health issues and huge workload. And, you know, rather than being given space to think, just Mm. to think and to live and to, to get to know who they are and what they want to be and where mm. they want to go. And that just needs time. You cannot do this if you're running from one classroom to the next right, and right. run assignment, midterms, uh, you know, final exam and many courses at the same time. Right. There is no time. There's absolutely no time. If they have time, they might go to the gym, but <laughs> but then again, they go home and work on the assignment, you know, that, that mm. um, I sometimes wish, you know, younger people in particular who are still finding themselves, they need to know who they are. And yeah, as I said, and this is unfortunately in our society now, 2023, everything is very oriented towards being efficient, being successful, being top Mm -hmm. of the class or among the top 10% of the class. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really worrying me. So what what could one do? Well, in particular here at the, at institutions, educational institutions, uh, universities in particular is to start a discussion on those Mm -hmm. issues and how can we make our students not only into great engineers or great psychologists or great Mm -hmm. chemists, but also into great people who have very rich lives and interests and, you know, where they have time during their studies to take a poetry class or a ballroom dance class or Mm. learn to play an instrument and or engage in some voluntary work, you know, in the local communities and um so how to educate them in a in a in a more well you might call it holistic although i don't like that term particularly but but you know just right. just make them into into great people not just great and successful um students who graduate top of the class uh, because that's not necessarily an an indicator for being a successful or a good person so I, yeah. I completely agree with you. I'm just thinking like if I were an administrator at the university and I have pressures from above, uh, from the provincial uh, sort of in, here in Canada, we have province uh, governments or the federal government that pushes you to deliver and be efficient. And, uh, you know, it's about how many students you churn out because that's um, how much money you get. And on the other hand, you want to also create an environment for students to flourish. I would not want to be in that position. It's a very challenging position. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't have a have a solution, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, you were asking me what would you change, but honestly how we could change it, I just I just know what the goal should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't have the solution on how we could we could get there and what would need to change. talked a little bit about anthropomorphizing earlier and the possible dangers of anthropomorphizing robots and then we switch to wisdom and now I'm coming to probably something that's very anthropomorphic which is the question about wise robots so could there be a wise robot and can we distinguish a wise robot from an intelligent robot are really good at basic things you know carrying objects from A to B having a very you know brief conversation um but they do not yet i mean they are a far cry from human level intelligence in any area let alone general intelligence mm-hmm. um where you can uh, be intelligent you know overall in many many different uh, different areas of life so um but um also with you know some recent and some not so recent advancement in artificial intelligence ai um yeah. you can make robots more intelligent to make them um rational i would say rationality in the way how it's often being defined that in a particular situation given mm-hmm. on what you know and given what your goal is you will mm-hmm. make the decision that gets you closer to that goal certainly we can push this direction still mm-hmm. very far but so this, you're talking about optimization towards a particular goal in a specific context yeah i mean basically uh, doing the right thing making the mm-hmm. given the input that you have about the world about mm-hmm. the, the robot itself you know about what is around what it knows about the world given its knowledge and given what it tries to do it would do the right thing and we can mm-hmm. include different uh, different uh, uh, criteria also and weights but this would not be a wise robot because what that robot would lack is an understanding of what it means mm-hmm. to be human what it means to grow up what it means to have an uh, have a history to have mm-hmm. a have a childhood um, to have all of these life experience and finally to have a self. A robot doesn't know what it is. It doesn't know that it has a self. And when I when I refer to self here, I'm I'm very fond of um, Daniel Dennett's notion of the self as a mm-hmm. center of narrative gravity, mm. because this is the way how we define ourselves and redefine and recreate it on a daily, hourly, minute basis. We are telling ourselves who we are. We are telling ourselves of what our history was, what our childhood was, what our experience were yesterday. Um, we are changing this all the time. We dynamically reconstruct this narrative and therefore ourselves, and also, and that also helps us understanding others. Um, because as I said, for me, wisdom is to not only understand yourself but also mm-hmm. to try to understand others and then to link these two and you we as humans we can do that because of our life experience um right. 
but robots don't have a life. Mm-hmm. They are a piece of metal and silicon and batteries mm-hmm. and motors and, you know, or whatever other technology, artificial technology that you have. Um, they don't, they don't have a self. They don't have a life. They don't know what it means to have certain experience, positive, negative experience. They don't know what it is to feel pain or to love or to be disappointed or to be angry or to be happy. Yes, you can make the robot smile or you can make them frown. They can simulate emotions mm-hmm. clearly. Um, right. But it doesn't mean that the robot knows anything about these emotions or the situations in which these emotions occur or when they are appropriate. Again, you can program it in, but it doesn't mean that it understands anything of the human condition, human life experiences. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I wonder, many of our listeners will probably wonder what you think about this whole discussion about AI alignment uh, that has been in the news and the scares about the AGI overlord uh, enslaving us or forcing some kind of a catastrophe. Uh, Is that all just hot air? Uh, Can we even talk about AI alignment given what you mentioned about the challenges of creating a wise robot? Well, when I talk about robots, I mean actually physical robots. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have a situation uh, that I just described. When you talk mm-hmm. about, for example, these large language models now, ChatGPT and all these others, um, they give the impression that they do very human-like things. You can ask them a mm-hmm. question. You can ask them, can you write me an abstract um we were asking even the other day uh, ChatGPT to write a grant proposal um, with certain and? sections about motivation, background, research questions, methodology, uh, <laughs> results and discussion. And yes, there was a grant proposal. And I looked at it and, yep, I might have even accepted it. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the problem is, so yes, this is scary and oh, Of course, these um, generative AI can also produce videos, pictures, speech, can compose music, all of those things. Um, The problem is these models, again, they don't understand anything. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if they give you a recommendation, it might sound very plausible, but it might be absolutely wrong (laughs) and unfounded because these models are making up things. If they have to fill in a gap in their knowledge, they just invent it. They're generating it. So, you know, if uh, if the AI, you know, describes to you certain research, you might actually check what it wrote, and then you might find out this is absolutely nonsense. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it is literally made up. They are they are making up references. Um. For example, the other day, um, Dr. Ali Ayub, who works in my research group, he mm-hmm. he he works on robot robot learning. So he just, out of curiosity, um, you know, asked ChatGPT about um, a book on robot learning. Is there any you know book on robot learning? And then ChatGPT right. said that. 
Dr. Kerstin Dautenhahn has written a book, um, I forgot the title, I think it was something like Introduction to Machine Learning. So, so <laughs> Ali, you? yeah, so Ali knows me. He knows that right. we're using AI, but I would never write such a book. So he looked it up and he also asked me and uh, it became absolutely clear this was made up. It just makes up things and it just happened that it also used my name, you know, and, uh, and Ali actually works, works with me. So, um, Kristen, I have another explanation. Uh, the LLM has access to multiverse in a, in a different version of multiverse. A different Kirsten has written that book. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We also asked ChatGPT who was Kerstin Dautenhahn, and it, <laughs> and it gave my CV. It said I'm a climate scientist, and I also work go. in animal conservation. So I was quite proud of these answers because <laughs> I yeah. just I just wish I were a climate scientist or worked in animal con conservation. These are very important areas of research, but again, this is absolutely nonsense. <laughs> yeah. On the other side, like a, a slight positive twist. I mean, you mentioned Dan Dennett, uh, my uh, friend and uh, person I deeply admire, philosopher uh, Eric Schwitzgibel and his son. They fed um, a fi fine-tuned a model uh, that read all of Dan Dennett's writings, and they created a robot Dan that would be giving <laughs> Dennett-style responses really? and generate <laughs> permutations of new sort of prose in Dan Dennett's style. Wow. I mean, you know, it's not entirely Dan Dennett, but, and it makes stuff up, of course, but, you know, that's what philosophers partially do. Do anyway. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> <laughs> Robot Dan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a very, very interesting uh, topic. I mean, for, so, I mean, for creative purposes, so some right. of my researchers are actually using these large language models, ChatGPT, to, um, if they have to write scenarios, for example, Uh, for particular audiences and so on. And um, so for creative purposes where accuracy and truth doesn't really matter that much, that's absolutely fine. But using it, for mm. example, as a chatbot on a helpline um, for people who maybe, you know, have certain medical or mental health problems or just for customer service uh, helplines, where it actually matters what they respond and whether it's true or not, this is really, really dangerous. In, you know, in some creative contexts um, where you just suspend disbelief, then um, I'm not particularly worried about it, but many people are discussing or are already, have already actually sacked lots of staff in call centers, right. for example, or writers, journalists, um, because the one... Um, in charge think well we can get this much cheaper mm. that's right and, and this is something that I find very very boring talking about efficiency again yep I was I, I'm really keen obviously an area that you've done a huge amount of work on is social robots uh, which is I think a term listeners will find pretty fascinating and and the development not only of social you know working on social robots but what the social rules might be that robots need to follow to you know if they're going to interact with humans you know to put them at ease and i think i saw a term in one of your papers roboticats which i thought was pretty cool so um i'd love to hear about um some of these rules you know what is it that robots have to do to put us at ease i'd be interested to know that mm. and 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 then kind of a follow-up to that is like 
if they're following rules, how do they respond when they're faced with a novel situation which they don't have a rule for? Or maybe it's a situation where two rules conflict that they're, you know, they're operating on. Um, so, yeah, first, just some of the rules. That would be fascinating as, you know, to know what mm-hmm. robots are doing to make us happy. Um, mm-hmm. and, then, and then secondly, how do these robots respond to these kind of novel situations mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're following rules? Yeah, let me just briefly say what social robots are and how they are different from from robots. I mean, right. social robots right. are robots, yeah. um, but they can interact and communicate with people on uh, human-centric terms. So they use gestures, they might use speech, facial expressions, um, and they basically try to take, um, or in research on social robots, we take a lot of inspirations on how people interact with other people or how they interact with uh, um, with their pets, for example, like dogs. Um, so this is what social robots are. Now, this concept of robotic cat, um, this is really, I mean, it's a little bit going back to what I said at the beginning of our discussion, that um, we should treat people, others with um, respect and also with politeness. And that's basically at the heart of this, you know, similar to the to the human etiquette. You know, you want to behave appropriately in a particular context. And of course, context can differ. And what is the etiquette in one context could not be, you know, could be very different from the other. So what is it in terms of robots? So, for example, um, I've done a, a lot of studies on how mobile robots, let's say a home robot that um, assists you in your home with some daily tasks, how it should approach people, mm-hmm. approach directions, um, or how it should hand over objects. Why is this relevant? Well, let's say you are in your living room and maybe you have a laptop on your lap or you're watching TV on a big screen and the robot wants to alert you to something, maybe that your food is ready or that the doorbell rang and you didn't notice, then how should the robot approach you? Humans never really think about this, right? We, mm-hmm. it is so, we are so social. We are literally, as scientists say, humans are social animals. So we cannot help but reacting socially to other people and also to technology, to robots, for example. But how should, how should robots behave? Robots are not naturally born social animals who grew up in a society and learned about um, social, you know, etiquette and mm-hmm. uh, communication and how you should talk to your teacher, how you should talk to your parents, to your friends. They have no idea about this. Mm-hmm. So we then did um, a number of experiments to find out how the robot should approach the person, for example, from the back, from the front, from the side from the left, from the right, and so on. We also studied handover. Um, Other people have also studied um, other aspects, for example, with regards to robot using natural language, how the robot should speak to a person, and so on. So this is is also basically on trying to find out what are people's uh, uh, preferences. Now, in this particular article that maybe you were referring to, I just try to guess what you were reading about it. Um, When I said rules, I didn't literally mean rules in the sense of if, then. Right. Um, It doesn't really matter how they are implemented. Um, It's more about these, um, so rules more in the sense of the human etiquette 
um, and then how you implement them, whether literally as rules or as some other, you know, distributed knowledge um, uh, in some way, depending on the particular architecture that you use, the, the computational architecture that you use, that doesn't really um, that doesn't really matter. These rules also need to be flexible. And that goes back to what you said. Okay, what if there are novel situations? Mm. Because let's say a person does not want the robot to approach directly from the front, because in particular, if it's a big and tall robot, it can be quite, um, can appear, you know, a little bit confrontational, you know, similar to a person who would directly approach you from the front and look at you, you would think, um, what is this about? Mm. Um, as opposed to someone who just, you know, slightly from the side, kind of uh, more slowly approaches you. But if, let's say, the robot detects that the person is in, a, in an emergency, then, of course, uh, these, these rules uh, uh, should not be, not be followed necessarily. If the person is about maybe to, to fall, um, then the robot should definitely try to reach this person as soon as possible so that mm. they, can, they can check on them. So these rules, of course, have to be, have to be flexible and also, they need to be learned. Um, what I've done in my research that's already actually many years ago is that we exposed people to different robot behaviors and then we just tried to um, find out, meaning asking people, which of those do you prefer? Um, right. So the robot didn't learn these rules. We ask people about their preferences and mm. then put these preferences into the mm. robots. But of course, you can also think about a robot who would learn these preferences, also individual preferences. So the robot could could personalize its behavior um, if it is, for example, in someone's home for many years. And uh, because people's behaviors and preferences also change, people's mm. needs change. And so... Um, please don't think about these rules as something that is static and uh, pre-programmed. Um, ideally, uh, these should also be learned, but this is, uh, uh, of course, not easy mm. because it would mean that the robot needs very sophisticated uh, perceptual Mm. Um, skills, observational skills, um, and then trying to find out if, for example, if it sees the person doing something in a particular way, it needs to observe this many times because mm. um, this one instance could just be one instance, you know, you need to see, okay, what is this person generally doing in most cases um, in these situations? And so the robot can then generalize and and learn about this behavior. But this is really active um, area of research. Yeah, I imagine that's kind of like uh, how a human would learn. You know, they would, you know, there will there'll be times when humans face novel situations and they're not sure what to do because they haven't seen it before. And the robot... You know, if it, if, even if it's a learning machine, um, if it's a new situation, it, it might freeze and wouldn't know how to respond. But if it uh, came across that situation sufficient number of times, it could learn an appropriate response, which is similar to how I might learn something or how a child might learn something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of my very recent projects, actually, the student just graduated a couple of months ago, is on social referencing where in situations where the robot is unsure whether it's doing the right thing, it is checking with the person 
is that okay? Mm. Similar to how children learn how they should react to novel objects or novel people that they come across. So, for example, um, if a child, let's say you have a very young child, maybe a toddler, and you go outside, you go for a walk in a park or so, and the child sees a snake for the first time in their life. They've never seen a snake. Right. Then it is very likely the child would look at the adult they are with, one of their parents or an older sibling, you know, somebody who is around, um, and look at what, how that person reacts to the snake. You know, is mm-hmm. the person having a scary face? Is the mm-hmm. person maybe smiling? Maybe, maybe this mm-hmm. is um, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, this is a non-poisonous snake, like mm-hmm. here uh, in Waterloo, garter snakes, for example. You can sometimes see them. These are great animals. I really love them. If I see them, I might even approach the snake and try to have a closer look. So, right. if a young child, or well, my children are now much older, but you know, if I had been with a with a young child and the child would look at me and then would see, oh, mom mm-hmm. is happy about it. So I don't need to be worried about the snake. Mm-hmm. And, you know, similar if they come across a stranger um, who the child has never seen, then again, they do social referencing um, mm-hmm. uh, to their to their carers uh, to to see should they approach this person, should they avoid this person, should they even be scared of this person. Mm. So, um, right. so, so this is slightly different from robotic cat, but it is more related to one, mm. uh, what what you said that robots ideally should learn the same way children learn about mm. the world, mm. including social learning, um, imitation, mm. um, uh, and social social referencing, because this is. You know, it is uh, y- human culture, human societies have this very sophisticated system of social learning that includes mm. education. Mm. Um, we do not need to learn everything on our own from scratch. We can ask mm-hmm. other people. We can mm-hmm. read books or watch YouTube videos. If you don't know how to fix your whatever it is, um, you know, go to go to YouTube. <laughs> right. You will surely find <laughs> find a manual and lo- well, lots of videos on how to do things and and so um yeah robots unfortunately Mm. don't have that there are no robot societies where little robots when they grow up can learn from the (laughs) big big robots robots. um maybe not yet yeah that's right yeah (laughs) yeah i i think on the other hand of course you can do other things with robots that you cannot do with people um people for example have only I mean, we have limited capacity for memory and remembering because we have only one nervous system, including our brain. We cannot double it suddenly. Um, Robots could, of course, benefit Mm. from the experience of other robots, not by talking, that's far too complicated, but by simply, by literally sharing Mm. their knowledge in a direct way by knowledge transfer. So that could be... A different way on how robots can learn socially, not in the way we do, talking, observing, asking questions, but directly sharing knowledge. And there is some work also where people um, are trying this. So when it comes to inspirations um, from humans or other social animals, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to 
you know, one for one, literally replicate what creatures do, but you can take inspiration from that. Right. So, Kirsten, in your 2022 paper, Potential Applications of Social Robots in Robot-Assisted Interventions for Social Anxiety, you talk about robots having a role in therapeutic treatment by delivering interventions or training to patients prescribed by a professional therapist. Could you see social robots soon stepping up and providing emotional support or providing some kind of wise situation-specific guidance to humans? So now for quite a few years, I've been interested in investigating how robots can be used um, in, in therapy for children in particular, but also more recently for adults, for example, university students here at University of Waterloo, helping them to deal with um, uh, the, uh, the social anxiety in, for example, public speaking um, situations. Now, what roles could robots have there? Well, my goal is not to replace therapists or coaches, but to use robots as a, as right. a stepping stone. You also use this, this term yourself because robots can be really good coaches. You can program them with a lot of knowledge about, for example, um, relaxation techniques, uh, mindfulness, um, or some elements of cognitive behavioral therapy, and so on. Um, and so they can be a way in how people um, can interact with a system that is non-judgmental. This could mm -hmm. be particularly important for uh, young people, but well, basically everyone who, who maybe, although they sense they might need some support, they, they don't want to talk to a person. Mm -hmm. um, they feel if I now approach a therapist, there's a, there's a stigma. I don't really want that. And um, and uh, when we did surveys and also uh, studies now recently with university students, they also mentioned it themselves that it could be quite useful for people who, um, in particular those who really have social anxiety and want to get help with that, due to social anxiety, they might have problems approaching, seeking help, um, approaching counselors, approaching therapists. So robots are not meant to replace therapists, but they could be a good stepping stone because mm -hmm. maybe once students interact with robots and get some knowledge and are being taught some of the skills, they might think, oh, this is actually quite useful. Maybe I should talk to a person now about mm -hmm. it to get some more detailed expertise. In other applications where we work with children, for example, on speech and language therapy or working with children with learning disabilities, it is actually not the robot alone that provides the therapy or the instruction. It's the robot right. together with a, a human therapist or instructor where the robot is basically a tool um, mm -hmm. that the instructor or the therapist can use in order to engage the children, in order to let them relax, for example, playing games with the robot or, um, or in some other um, uh, useful aspects um, that robots can be, can be used. So, um, so yeah, it is, it is really not about replacing the experts, mm -hmm. but um, helping more people, as I said, people who maybe sense, um, oh, I would really benefit from therapy, but to who really have this um, mental block of 
now making right. an appointment with a human being. Because after all, any therapist they might approach or counselor is a stranger. So they would right. have to talk about very personal things with basically a complete stranger, who in many cases, uh, when it comes to young students, might be many years older than they are. So yeah. there are quite a few barriers that have been reported in the literature. I'm not the only one who says that. Lots of people mm -hmm. have said very similar things. And this is why, for example, students are much more comfortable with, with apps on their phone, mental health apps on their phone, mm. or robots, um, which... Of course, uh, similar to apps on a phone, you know, they are also intelligent systems and um, they have this added value of um, having a physical embodiment, mm -hmm. um, being able to show social cues like, you know, facial expressions or gestures. And um, uh, so, but both these mental health apps as well as robots, it's the same argument to say uh -huh. it is a stepping stone. And right. robots could maybe help more with compliance because they are um, they have this physical presence, you know, they're sharing time and place with the person. It is not like a virtual interaction on your mobile phone. So I have two follow-ups there. One is earlier we talked about the challenges to build a wise robot in part because um, you need to be sensitive to the situation and the robots may be optimized for a particular situation but like crossing into a new one and it's it's difficult but here we, when you're talking about sort of situation specific guidance uh, in the therapeutic context is that possible or is that the role that the the actual human therapist would be taking over and just steering then the robot in different directions can the robot be situation specific in their guidance to humans? I mean, therapists or any other type of, you know, people working in the medical space, mm -hmm. work with patients, work with clients, they, of course, have a lot of insights. And, you know, if they have done this job for many years or decades even, they can, you know, very quickly when they meet someone, they can also, you know, form a certain impression about that person that will help them then in doing a diagnosis or um, suggesting a treatment or even going, um, uh, working on a treatment uh, for that patient or that client. Robots cannot do that. That's why I said we need always a, a human in the loop um, all of this has to be under the supervision of a therapist or often in the uh, case of robot-mediated instruction in the, uh, in the hands of an instructor or a teacher. What I described in this terms of a mental health coach, this is not about individualized um, um, treatment or individualized exercises. This is more... Right. Um, a more general, you know, similar, you go to a course and want to learn together with 50 other people about mindfulness practices um, mm -hmm. or breathing, specific breathing uh, uh, techniques. You will not learn individualized techniques. You will, you will be taught certain techniques. And this is something that robots could do on their, on their own. 
um, not as a therapist, but really more as a, as a source of information, um, as a coach. But if you use robots really in therapy, um, then you would, uh, as far as I'm concerned, we need to have a human presence. It has to be under the supervision of a human mm -hmm. being because only human beings can make these decisions on individual treatments and individual um, conditions that a particular person might be, might be in. Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on our show today. We learned a lot about social robots, their limitations, and their prospects. Uh, it's all very exciting, at the same time a little bit scary. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me here, and um, I definitely enjoyed our discussion. We did too. Thank you, Kirsten.